This is the Made It in Music Podcast. I'm Seth Mosley, and this is Show 149. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full-time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What's up? This is Seth Mosley, and you're with us on the Made It in Music podcast. Hope y'all are hanging in there okay. Uh, it's a crazy world right now if you're, if you're listening to it, and we are still in the coronavirus situation, which I'm anticipating will be for a little while now. This episode is going to be very timely for you. And we have with us on the show today, John Butler, who is a man with inside knowledge about how streaming is going to evolve and play out over the next couple of years. How does he have that? Well, because he was on the inside of Spotify. He was a curator and is just going to blow your minds with uh, tons of knowledge about how you can dominate in the streaming world, which is the world we live in now. So whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Pandora, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, But before we jump in, just a quick little Academy quick tip highlight. Make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast. Subscribing is what podcast players look at the most for recommending top podcasts. So it really helps us out. And subscribing makes sure that all the new episodes are automatically on your device whenever you're ready to listen. Your music education is one of the most important things that you can work on in the music industry. So if you're new to the music industry, learning the ins and outs of how it works, it's one of the best things you can do to grow. And the pros also know how important it always is to to be learning, to stay on top of the latest industry trends. Tons of music biz professionals, record labels, managers, publishers, and musicians all listen to this podcast too. So if you're not yet subscribed, do yourself a favor, take just a few seconds to fix that on your favorite podcasting tool right now. So without further ado, John Butler, welcome to the Made It Music Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me this morning. I appreciate the time. And uh, I don't know if you have a lot of time, but sort of this weird place to feeling like you do have a lot of time, but you, the days are going by really quickly. They are. Well, I, and, and I, I appreciate your time, man. I know it's, it's crazy. You're, you're a man in demand as far as, you know, this new world that we're living in, um, with streaming and you, you bring a lot of expertise to that. So before we jump into all that, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your backstory. What, what was the moment that music first connected with you and you knew that it was going to be what you did professionally? I wanted to be a baseball player when I was uh, when I was a kid, so I was very much interested in, in the art of of, uh, of batting. And I remember reading these, uh, this great book by uh, Charlie Lau, who coached uh, George Brett of the um, City Royals on on his exceptional 1980 year, where he hit like 390 for the year. It was ridiculous and sort of like I wanted to do that, but the Baseball was just everything. So um, I hadn't thought about music at all. And uh, I guess when, when you're, you know, when you're 12, 13 and, and, and you start to get a little taller, maybe you develop a little quicker uh, or some don't. And we used to have these kids, uh, like 13 years old, they were throwing 80 miles an hour. And I was like, I'm, 
I barely could throw a curveball and barely hit 16. <laughs> so I was like, uh, you know, but I'd always been fascinated about music and um, but never played an instrument. So I picked up a guitar, got a guitar and uh, got into that pretty quickly. And by at least maybe two years into it, I was pretty proficient. Um, and uh, before the age of being able to look at YouTube videos, man, I wish I had some of that stuff growing up. Um, but I was copying licks from records and and tapes and rewinding and starting again. So um, decided actually to go to school for that and was able to go to a great school called William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, a great jazz program there. They also have a music business program. So I was fascinated about, about um, sort of the ins and outs of why things work and who did what on the back of record album covers and, you know, what, uh, what people's lives like were like in, in music. So, um, so the, the business part, it was always interesting to me, but it wasn't clear how people or how, why people did what they did or what it is that they did. So, um, I just was, um, had a, a deep, uh, passion about learning when, when it came to that stuff. So, um, went there and got a degree in music and music management, worked at a radio station there at college and was able to pick music. So I was working on the air at a, at a DJ show six to 10 in the morning <laughs> As a college student, you can imagine that's not normal. That's an early morning. Um, <laughs> that's an early morning. Three days, three days, not five days a week, three days a week. So Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Think about Thursdays in college, right? And so I was there at six in the morning up Man. doing a morning show on a college radio station. So wow. Um, that's how I got into music business. So I went right from right from there to a uh, gig in uh, college radio promotion. So yeah. I think I was 21, something like that. Maybe. I don't think I was even 21. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think when we first met, you were, you were in radio promotions. And so how long did you do that for? I mean, I know that was a big, big chunk of your career was in radio promo. Yeah. That, that is never going to go away. I mean, that's part of, you know, the foundational exposure of music. So it's like the old new tech, basically. Um, so I did record promotion for, um, 27 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's black calling radio, thinking about it, sleeping about it. Yeah. You know, um, and knowing how that worked. Um, and that definitely served me pretty well. And from understanding, you know, the foundations of like exposing music and how to work with people and um, learning about the realities of how people consume music. Um, so it was a really valuable background. I wish a lot more of my, you know, editorial friends had, had had that sort of radio promotion or radio background, but that's a trend that actually is kind of happening right now at DSPs. Um, there's actually more radio people and people that are coming from traditional media into these uh, services as they mature. So. Well, tell us about that part of your journey, because you, you've got some very inside experience having been one of the leaders of the Spotify Nashville office. Can you tell us about that, that part of your journey? Yeah. So after, um, after doing radio promotion for uh, a good amount of time, the reason kind of why I got interested in streaming as a function of why it was important is because um, I was 
sort of dealing with needing to have as much data to really effectively work our records. And there was just a real lack of it or a lack of leverage of audiences that we were building for records that we were working at radio on the label side. And um, there wasn't really any sort of apparatus to serve that to me to be able to go into a radio station and say, hey, look, we have an audience. Look, we have a sync placement in the TV show or film. Those things are really valuable in terms of the building blocks of being able to market a record thoroughly. And uh, I, my hat had to change just because it was sort of like it didn't necessarily have that natively handed to me. It wasn't like, yeah, go work these radio stations. Here's all the information. Here's the great place that we have on TV. All that stuff had to be sort of developed by hand by our team, um, by our radio promotions team. So we had to kind of like become um, marketers in addition to radio station pluggers. Um, and that's what made me fascinated about streaming data because it was like knowing um, insights into radio's audience before radio did. And, um, and it just kind of, we were able to frame stories. You could take stories from the data where things were happening, where things were, where music was breaking out, be able to craft a story based on that back to radio. So I was like, that got me really excited about streaming and being able to use this technology. And that was 2013, maybe a little earlier. Um, and I was really, um, I can tell you a pivotal moment uh, that was influential um, at uh, South by Southwest. Um, there was a woman named uh, Rachel Whitney who was working for Borman Management um, at the time. And uh, she was heading a panel called a, a Million Streams Before Radio. And I'd never seen a panel like that, something that was advertised that way. So I was... I, was, I may have been maybe one of a handful of promo people that went to that. I was fascinated about that. One of the, one of the things that I'd always kind of run into in my career working records at radio is that I always had to be pretty scrappy in terms of finding great opportunities, whether I was Sixpence on the Richer or with, with Kiss Me and, you know, film placements and things like that. And I was a very small team working those things, you know, without any right to be at the at the big kids table. So it's constantly trying to find ways that data can help us with the big kids table. And there was this uh, panel at South by that was saying, Hey, you need to have a million, it's sort of in a way you need to have a million streams before you're even thinking about marketing. The radio. You need to be able to show that a song has, you know, as acceptance in an audience to show general media um, that it's worthy for the investment of time. And even from a label standpoint, where are you going to put your money and your resources to build a career? Is that the right song? Well, streaming became this great place to test sort of your A&R hypothesis. And again, sort of tying all this, tying all the different jobs that are at labels together into this thing. It was A&R, it was marketing, it was sales, it was promotion. And streaming sort of became the end of that funnel in any discussion that I was having for like three or four years. I had the great fortune of um, having a um, friendship early on before streaming um, with a guy who sold his company, Spotify. And, um, and he was also passionate about free research, learning more about 
how to get to the audience directly with music. And social media has done that for us and platforms, even even MySpace back in the day, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Did that. Um, and and as, as well organized as all, all that, was, the audience has really had to kind of age and grow up and mature with it. So um, all these other services probably wouldn't have been successful at that time. But now, like, people are native to this. They've grown into this idea that you know people are discovering music without a top-down you know old media sort of establishment and but it's, it's also exciting for old media as well to understand their audience even better so somewhere it's about being agreeable to the old media and the new media that really got me excited about the idea of going to streaming and um since i had some experience in in christian music and understood that music pretty well, although I've been working on the pop side and countryside and, and rock side. Um, you know, I was given an opportunity to come in as a, a genre lead, the last one um, for uh, at Spotify. Uh, so, um, and that was in early 2017. Mm. Well, I want to I come back to that, but let's fast forward really quick to today. You are, and I love the way that you you word this, you're, 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 you can give people streaming guidance counseling. Um, can you tell us what, what all does that entail? When, when somebody works with you, what is it that, that you do as far as, you know, strategy, pitching, um, data analysis, all of that stuff? Can you give us the 10,000-foot overview of all of that? Yeah, sometimes it's 60,000 feet. It's very yeah. heady, very intellectual, and very quickly. Um, and I try not to do that because music is about relationship. Yeah. So the data is cold and it tells you something, but inside that data are particular stories about people's behavior, their interest and proclivity to particular styles, how they group things, how they make their own playlists. Um, and each of those things and understanding of those things are, are really helpful to understanding, um, an artist understanding themselves and how their music is going to react to people. And since there's so much, so much transparency, because, you know, in particular Spotify is an open platform and the other, the other services are beginning to be more open. I mean, Pandora's stories are fantastic where artists can, you know, record and then put a playlist together. So it's a mixture of podcast and, and music. It's fantastic. I mean, more of that, please. You know, having um, the ability for an artist who really loves talking about their music, that platform is fantastic. You know, um, context in, in music is great. You know, um, music podcasts are really interesting because a lot of them you can't play music on, right? So you're talking about music. And I used to hear these quotes all the time, like talking about music is like watching paint dry on the wall, right? There's just, it's, it's very difficult to get emotion when you're talking about music. You want to yeah. turn the podcast off and go listen to music. Right? Um, but um, more to the point of, uh, of uh, what you were mentioning is that uh, um, streaming just became the central point of, of how an artist is communicating with a potential audience. And, and so, I'm able to kind of go in and find um, answers for X. So when any artist that I'm working with um, 
has strengths and weaknesses. So we really emphasize the strengths. Are they more visual? Are they more um, lyrical? Or, or do they love music? Do they love curation? Do they have great taste in music? Well, those, those are valuable tools now that are transparent to an audience that it may not have been in a traditional label or a traditional working radio sort of situation where you have to go through another um, tool or another funnel in order to promote what it is that you're doing without any context. Now there's so much context. It's actually trying to find Sherpas that are able to kind of curate, which is why the role of the curation at DSPs became so important. It's just so much music, and even now so. And now there's a reliance now um, between human curation and computer-generated curation about being able to provide you as a user the best music experience. But think about that. We are, we are in an age where if you fire up whatever DSP you use, pretty much it's going to be a halfway decent experience. And that decent experience is actually going to get phenomenally better. But we're really talking about a user experience. We're not necessarily always talking about an artist. And so I fall in between the line of trying to make a great artist experience where they're getting the most out of streaming directly to an audience that really is looking for them and wants them. So I exist in that place. So the skills of promotion background, where I always had to find that out. What format are we going to? What are the starter stations that we need to get? What do we need to kind of show people that there's something happening? How do we, you know, um, figure out their, what's going on from the road and who's speaking? So all of that now is still important because it feeds into an actual one-to-one relationship with, an art, with a uh, listener and a user of that particular artist's music. So I craft plans to be able to do that and can kind of take a look at their data and kind of figure out where they need to go, what they need to emphasize and then have tools to be able to kind of help them do that. I love it. So obviously some, some of the um, streaming guidance counseling relates to pitching. And I know, you know, just, just to focus on Spotify for a second, they're very big on their whole playlist submission tool, but you know, are there, how does one go about getting on playlists? And you could talk, you could speak specifically to Spotify. You could talk about the other ones as well, too. Yeah, well, the pitch tool is really valuable. I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know if, uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether or not you have comments or whether or not in your experiences or other people's experience, what their experience has been with the pitch tool. But the pitch tool was created so that the editorial team um, as well as people in Spotify can make sense and manage the ability to be able to hear and deal with all the music that was coming into the platform. And it's such a great thing. Uh, and it was a brilliant piece of uh, technology. It's, um, um, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people describe it a lot of different ways. And I try to come up with sort of ways of, of um, describing it uh, to people that, you know, initially when they weren't sure what it was, and even artists now are kind of dealing with this tool here, what is it like? So, you know, the DMZ line in North Korea and South Korea, right? There's like, I guess, a building and there's a table in it and there's a line that's like split down the middle, right? And, uh, you know, North Koreans sit on one side and South Koreans sit on the other side and you're pushing papers across the table. 
you know, you can't go over there. Um, and so you're trading information in between this room. That's kind of like what the pitch tool is. It's not completely like it, but it's kind of like that, but you don't see anybody. So it's kind of like a veiled screen and you're pushing information into the editorial team that the editorial team is seeing and they're listening to the music and they're considering all of these things. And the feedback is whether or not you get a playlist or whether or not you don't or whether or not something else is happening. But it's an it's a tool, it's an effective tool for artists to be able to have a a, a direct discussion in in the pitch, in words, and with the music, where the two people are not physically together, but that information is being switched back and forth. Mm. So you're pitching in, you know what it, you know what it is that you sort of put in your story about that song, where you're thinking you can go. Yeah, and the editorial team is taking that information and thinking about where it is and what you've said, and the feedback is playlisting or not playlisting or come back or send another piece of music or tell me more about, about you know the right kind of pitch. And there's there's a lot of information out there about what the right kind of pitch is, and there's a lot of debate. You know, I mean, and editors are human beings, so what, res- what resonates to one person may not resonate to others. I can share what was effective for me in the pitch tool is when an artist was able to share specifically about why the music that they wrote would move people. And in Christian music, that made a lot of sense because there, there's, there's a, um, there's a sense of hope and grace and forgiveness and love. And um, so I didn't want to see stats. I wanted to see the artist's heart. And if that music and what they wrote made me feel something, chances are the other people probably would resonate to it. And if the track wasn't great, I have the ability always to feedback, right? But it definitely sort of like after time, you can kind of get into a rhythm of how people were using the tool effectively. And I think people have done a very good job at, at, at utilizing it. I know that it's a godsend. Can you imagine? It's hard to describe um, what life was like as an editor without that tool. It was kind of like getting spreadsheets sent to you from every label, uh, the chance encounter that you had with an independent artist that was individually pitching you was all over the place. You get links here and things there. It's a very inefficient way to sort of um, organize you were going to do week to week in addition to what was already available and being pitched in the back end of the service. So um, it, just, it changed, changed the game. It made it possible for editors, and I think everybody would agree with this, um, it made it possible and still makes it possible for editorial team as well as Spotify to hear and interact with as much new music as even humanly possible, as well as the computer and the algorithms to handle it too yeah um the other the other dsps work differently but they all have pitch tools and they all are are you're all trying to figure out time that they have to be able to listen to music and and assess whether or not this works in here the biggest thing that that an artist can can do is is be a user sometimes sometimes taking the artist hat off is really valuable and becoming a music fan and going into Apple's incredible playlist properties and really spending time and 
and seeing these great descriptions, if you haven't, the folks, the editors there write write these beautiful descriptions of what that playlist is all about. They just have a seems a lot of room for being able to provide context as to what that expectation and that experience is all about. Um, I mentioned Pandora stories before. Amazon's playlists are, are, are strong too. I mean, there's great curation out there. Even Deezer, if you haven't used Deezer, please get in there and play around with it. Understand what, what the properties and what the playlists concepts are about. I had to take a lot of time in my role to think conceptually about what each playlist was supposed to provide in terms of the user experience with either algorithmic help or with just my mindset and the group and the editorial team deciding we this is a content area that we need to focus on. This is what we're missing. This is what this is a concept for a list. So I created 90 playlists when I was at Spotify and a lot of them, almost all of them are still active. And each of them has a particular idea and concept within the variety of different genres that I got to touch. Um, and um, it's really about adhering to those things. And then users and artists are able to make their own playlists and their own concepts of those things as well. And it's really important. Yeah, that's so good. So is it is it safe to say that Obviously, the playlist submission tool in Spotify is 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 a super great tool to make sure you're getting in front of those human curators because it is human curated. You mentioned that the other the other services have kind of their own versions of that as well. Is it safe to say that you know somebody like you who is maybe an independent consultant in this area, like if 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 the playlist tool is is a line and everything is funneling through that, it's nice and organized. Is it safe to say that hiring or working with somebody like you is a little bit of a, a supplement to that or a, a a backdoor in to to the actual people that are doing it? I would say that um, I think an understanding of utilizing the pitch tool is helpful and the services that the other services provide in terms of getting editorial coverage, but it's really down to how great the music is. There's more music being uploaded into all these services that will, that, that may never be heard. Um, trying to find, you know, a discovery of, of those songs is really difficult, even with the tools. Um, it's about really understanding your own business, understanding who you are as an artist, understanding the playlist properties, understanding how to really communicate with a human. Um, all those things are, are extremely helpful. Um, when you're working with somebody that's doing pitching, you know, may have particular skill sets that they're better at. They may have an understanding of really playlist well or create great third-party playlists or relational third-party playlisting. Um, some pitchers um, may or may not have editorial context. And the idea of the pitch tool is to really alleviate, the, um, uh, give the ability for editors to really work on what it is they're supposed to work on instead of getting pitched all day long. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a valuable tool for, you know, doing your job well. Um, influence and lists, you know, it's, it all comes down to the song. It all comes down to the data that that song produces. And it really is incumbent on every artist to develop their own audience. That's passion. That's passionate about the music 
and use the tools that are available. And in particular, Spotify's tools are just killer. Yeah. And the other DSPs have killer tools as well. I mean, they really do. And it's just finding the right ones. And it takes a little time. And sure. it takes a frequency of release. Uh, I've really preached that while I was at Spotify, that the more often you're putting music into the ecosystem, you're planting, you're having the ability Ability to plants in places that song that songs or trees in this sense will grow, right? And it's about being, you know, Johnny Appleseed and then gardening, you know, and it's um, it's a process. Um, is there is there a uh, kind of a best practice as far as how often people should be thinking about putting out new music? Yeah, that varies between you know, and a lot of. I'm sorry for the vague answers. I mean to say one thing and sort of like block step that's it generally a new artist you release a lot more often um again the new artist hasn't proven a particular song that they're associated with and so the more often they can get people to come bite or come sit at the table of that meal and see what the variety of things are you know, the more often you can kind of build things. I like the idea of artists really, and this is something that I think you've done pretty well and and, uh, um, and a lot of artists with producers and the A&R process within labels is that um, at the outset of recording, you have to have multiple versions of every song um, and as wide ranging thematically genre-wise as possible. And I mean, that really separates the artists from the artists, um, you know, in a, in a sense. I mean, if you're coming out and you have a song or a group of songs, you have an acoustic mix, you have a solo piano version of it, have a remix of it, you have, you know, an edit of it, you know, vocal up, vocal down, dance mix, you know, acapella version, um, versions in different languages. If you're thinking about that at the front end, I would urge every artist that has the ability to speak in other languages to record every single song of theirs in all of the different languages that they know. Mm. There's a huge world out there. Songs resonate in English in other parts of the world, sure. Mm. But having the insight and opportunity to sing in native languages in those countries and being able to understand that and do it effectively and authentically is a tremendous value. Um, to artists as well as different versions musically of things and so if somebody likes yeah somebody likes a song why why can't they have it in lots of different ways and it helps and helps um create additional opportunities for discovery and that's really what dsps is particularly spotify is about discovery pandora is too and uh and amazon each one of each one of the dsps are doing a better job at being able to serve what you're into. And COVID right now, what we're experiencing right now is a great example of that. You know, if you take a look at all the rebranding that Apple has done geniusly with the whole like, you know, stay at home sort of mindset, YouTube has done it as well. They're refacing all the playlist covers, they're all the concepts, it's all chill and relive your favorite records because you have time to really take deep dives into things. So. I would imagine listening has gone up pretty well. Streaming has gone up okay, you know, but everybody's going to get tired of their Netflix queue, right? It's kind of like, you know, how many 
how many uh, new series can you try and not like after the first um, episode that you spend an hour on? Whereas, you know, you're going to listen to a song for three minutes, four minutes. And it's, it's completely different value judgment, right? It's so a lot more sampling. If people are doing multiple versions, like you mentioned, is that something that they should put out kind of all at the same time? Or do you recommend like kind of dripping them out over time, every couple of weeks, every few weeks, put, put a new acoustic mix out or a piano mix comes out later is it better to kind of put them all out uh at the same time it really depends on on the uh, on the song um the artist's career where they are monthly listeners you know um i wouldn't recommend putting 25 different versions of that one thing out I, it'd be interesting to see um maybe you guys uh, maybe your audience is familiar with an artist named tara Wack. Um, who put out a 15-song record, I think in July or late June of 2018, and they were one-minute songs. And I guess it, I mean, I wasn't, I'm smiling because it, I, I thought it was awesome, but, and she had videos for every single one of those songs too, and they told different stories, but they were one-minute one minute songs. And I thought, wow, we've really kind of like, gotten very creative, right? How often do you think those one-minute songs were repeated and counted as a listen, you know? The first 30 seconds, if you're listening for the first 30 seconds, it counts as a stream. So if you have more of an opportunity to have these one-minute songs that are really interesting and people can loop them and play them over and over again, it's kind of a really interesting idea. So there's a lot of tactics and a lot of, like, streaming strategies and ideas that they're all like little like battles within a larger sort of like, how do I differentiate? How do I stand out? How do I separate myself and really show my uniqueness as an artist? And that's a challenge. It's a challenge when there's so much stuff up, but there's a lot of terrible stuff up too. I mean, it's like, you know, there's a lot of great things that being exposed and there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, average. It's again, People make judgment calls about music every time they hit play. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. So let's, let's talk to the independent artist out there who's kind of just getting started up. How can they best move forward? Even if, you know, they don't have a playlist yet. Like what's, what are, what are some things that they can be doing to, to grow their streaming, um, you know, portfolio or catalog, so to speak? Well, we talked about um, releasing more often. Um, but before you're doing that, it's just to kind of really do a self-examination about like who it is that you are as an artist and what your main idea is, if you do have a main idea. Um, I kind of hope that artists have taken the time to really kind of assess, you know, that the 10 questions of like why I do what I do and where am I, and just having that, actually like almost a counseling session with another person to kind of like throw that off. Like, you know, you can't, it's valuable to talk to other people that don't have an invested emotional relationship with you or friendship with you to throw these things off with. Cause you need a, an ear and someone that's going to be able to kind of think objectively and uh, kind of like, okay, well, you're, that's a great lyric. The music's not so great here. Like, be able to have that idea going into battle. It's preparation for war. 
you know, it's being able to kind of understand, do you have enough people at the front line? Do you have a strategy? What happens when they attack? Do you like, it's, it's all being able to plan out an effective communication strategy. Um, I'm in the midst of writing a blog post called Strategy Eats Culture for Breakfast. Um, and I'm sort of examining that because I've always been told the opposite. And culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know why culture eats strategy for breakfast is that your strategy is crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because strategy, like the gospel, so don't mean to get like you know, super on it. It doesn't yeah. change. It is. It is is laid out. It doesn't change. No matter what happens, it is continuing on a plan going through. And so, you know, not to oversimplify that, but it's important for artists at the front end to kind of have an understanding of who they are, what their message is, and to stay on message mm. until, until it doesn't work or until they discover in the process of life and making music and creating music that they change a little bit. Because no matter what, if you've been able to get an audience and you've been authentic about it, that audience should probably follow you wherever you go. Hmm. And I think it's really important, you know, to assess from, there are tools that you were asking about, like, you know, what do you do here? What do you do here? Um, and they're, they're going to be different for every artist. And the frequency of release to me is like the main and understanding the playlist ecosystem at every DSP. Um, understanding, is there a place for me straight up? Do I fit with these artists? And really listening to music objectively. I mean, it is, it is so great. This is such a great time for artists who are fans of music. Yeah. Because the more music, the more they enjoy the idea of curating for others. You know, uh, this is a golden time for that and will help you because the ecosystems of, D of DSPs and, and streaming are native to this idea of sharing music in the form of a playlist. Here, this here's this book. They are books. They are stories. Um, one of the things that, um, one of the taglines at, uh, at Spotify was that, uh, you know, we were part of the shows and editorial team because every playlist is a show. It's kind of a set list. And within a set list, when you're an artist performing, you have a, a flow of how, how things go. So every, every playlist just kind of works off of that principle. You know, there's a lot of ads out there. You'll see that as, you know, for Spotify to come work for them. It's like, you know, come join the band. Yeah, well, you're a band. You're joining a band. And these playlists are your set list. And expose these... But, it's this little club that you go to, if it's top Christian or, you know, whatnot, or just good music playlist. That's a club that you're seeing. And it's, that playlist is happening live right now all the time. And you go there and all those people go and engage with that playlist. So that's, that's kind of the responsibility of others. I love that um, description. I don't know if they really use that anymore, um, but the show's an editorial was really about you were creating a show mm. and a concept with each of those things. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about, we've talked a lot about Spotify. Um, obviously now you're, you're zoomed out a little bit. So maybe talk about Spotify versus some of the other platforms, Pandora, Amazon, Apple. 
um, and maybe even future casting. I know, I know you talk about each of them are kind of defining and differentiating themselves uh, almost kind of like a, a radio format, I guess, you know, where an artist really wants to kind of pick a lane and go after him. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, just the other platforms and, you know, should artists be really focusing in on one of them or should they be kind of going an all out assault and just sort of see what works? Yeah. So, you know, streaming is still kind of like, if we want to take a baseball metaphor, it's kind of in the, in the uh, bottom half of the third inning. It's really early in the game. And, you know, they all have, they all have subscriptions. Spotify has a free tier. Um, the free tier is awesome. Spotify wants to make that free tier as, as great as it can be. Premium is awesome. Apple Music is awesome. Uh, Amazon's a great tool. Pandora's got the tiers. Multiple relationship with SiriusXM. Deezer. Um, title even, you know, um, and they all have subscriptions. So the question is, is like how many people can afford each of those subscriptions and do they really toggle back and forth? Me being an Apple user, right? Um, I had uh, a first, you know, iPod. And um, I mean, once I got out of like my MP3 phase after scraping things off of Napster and, you know, burning them to a disc and playing them, you know, an MP3 disc and did a lot of that. Um, once I got, you know, the iPod and I got locked into the Apple ecosystem, uh, I wasn't interested in anything else. I tried once. I got one of these little uh, Sony music clips. This is like, this is ancient history now, but it feels like yesterday. So there's like, it was the size of a pen. Hopefully you'll pull up a graphic. It was the Sony Vio music clip. It was like, um, it had 40 megabytes. Of, so you can basically put a playlist on it. And it was, uh, it was, you had to save your music to a proprietary Sony based technology and play it from that. I mean, you're, you're really talking about people with a lot of time and, and, and are real interested in, in music and music technology, which I was at that time. This is 99, 2000, right? And you had all these MP3 players and, and whatnot. And then as soon as the iPod came, I got locked into a particular technology. So really kind of lost touch with anything else other than Apple. And there's a lot of people of that generation that have moved from iTunes into Apple Music, and they're very comfortable with that. So in a sense, Apple's already differentiated themselves as a, as a music platform with a particular sort of generation. It's not that they don't have younger users. They should lived in sort of like this sort of the changing of the guard in terms of music consumption. Pandora has too. Pandora was always thought of as a radio service. Even when I was doing radio promotion, we just used a, a really misunderstood Pandora from get-go is that they were something other than just a bunch of radio stations um, that had no programmers and nobody could talk to and pitch on music. So Pandora is great. Pandora is great for the, you can define your individual listening experience in a very passive way or active way in any particular time. And it's just flowing. 
and you can hit thumbs up and that algorithm really does well. And then it's also based on, you know, the music itself, because there's all musicologists that, you know, like will listen to stuff and decode it a particular way. Oh, if they like the strings, oh, they're going to love this particular thing. So it's, it's very thoughtful that music genome is um, really powerful. So in a sense, all of the services have really sort of differentiated themselves, but they haven't differentiated themselves as the content that exists on each of them, right? So Spotify's drive towards podcasts, Apple's drive towards podcasts, Pandora with the stories, that's going to be big for them. Amazon with what they're doing. Amazon is like, is going to come up with something pretty amazing to do themselves with that sort of physical experience, music experience, prime experience. Can you imagine how many people have prime right now that have never used the music service? They don't even know they have access to it and the voice technology that's associated with it. So it's kind of like there's enough people in the world that can get and will continue to be able to get an Alexa or an Echo and listen passively. How that's not going to aggregate into large numbers is, and I'm, and I'm jumping from DSP to DSP, but they really all have sort of, if you funnel down from that, each artist is probably better in particular areas with certain types of audience that like particular DSPs. And so I could see a differentiation as you were talking about where each of them sort of become their own genres, as in radio stations. You're going to go to Apple for this particular thing. You're going to go to Spotify because it's an open platform and you want to make your own playlist and you want to do a lot of discovery. And you're a little younger. Um, and or you like the podcasts or you like the new series that they are. The content is the thing that is going to continue to be a challenge of differentiation between all of them. So it's really incumbent about, about the artist community, not just music, but, you know, um, podcasting and whatever comes with video. And that's where YouTube really at the end of the day is, is really poised to kind of be the Swiss Army knife of all of it because they have all the ears and eyes and are slowly turning into it. But again, going back to that baseball metaphor, we're in the bottom of the third inning. It's an early game. Streaming is still very much in its infancy and hasn't reached, it's reached the world, but it hasn't reached everybody. There are a lot of people on earth that listen to music and it's just scratching the surface. So I know it sounds, it's, that's a pretty 60,000, 70,000 foot view of it. It's really, and there could be a disconnect between an artist that's independent artist to kind of figure out, well, where do I fit in all that? It just feels like this amazing ocean that I'm just going to throw a rock into. But when you start, when you start from the big and you work backwards and you understand who you are as an artist and work forwards, Somewhere in the middle, there's going to be a particular DSP that works really well for where your target audience is. And just being able to understand who you are and being able to put out music frequently is going to provide a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I love that. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up the conversation, and you you hinted on this a little bit, so I, I really want to dive um, deeper into this, you know, 
where are things going to go with streaming? You, we, we can talk about, you know, 24 months out, 12 months out, six months out, and really just giving us kind of a view from the future coming backwards. Cause obviously being inside Spotify, you know, um, these companies are planning, you know, much longer out. They're planning 12 months out, 24 months out. So how can an artist kind of take that view and set themselves up for success to win today? There's a lot of information out there that leaks out. Some of it's true, some of it's not. Some of it is true to you and you can utilize it. Um, I think it's really important for artists to stay on top of digital music news services. There's one right there, Digital Music News and Music Ally out of the UK, Music Business Worldwide. There's a few of them. Sometimes they repeat stories. Hypebot is great. I'm a voracious reader. I, I, like, I fire up the computer every morning and I just go through stuff. And, you know, again, I'm filtering things with a different, you know, viewpoint. And I'm trying to think about the artist, my artist's reality of like what they need to pay attention to and what we need to work here. But if I had to pull back, I mean, one of the things that was that I wrote in a blog post, you can find on LinkedIn, and I'll send you guys a link to where I'm writing about this stuff every week. It's called It's called uh, Confessions of a Playlist Editor. And, you know, um, they're just insights to where I kind of dealt with things, you know, internally at Spotify that were helpful to learn about the mindset of understanding the DSP culture, as well as understand artist culture. And one of the things that I wrote about in there recently was um, how when Daniel Eck would talk to the team, it was always kind of like the future had already been built and we were just living out sort of almost like manifest destiny, predetermination of like whatever we we're going to fill in. Like it had already been set. And two years ago, pretty much around two years ago, he said that the algorithm is going to get so great that it is going to know what it is that you want before you even know it. And um, concurrently with that, about two months later, on one of my other blog posts, I, I, I wrote a piece called, uh, The Algorithm is Gonna Get You. So I was in London for team meetings and I saw this um, spray painted um, car park um, door and it had this uh, figure on it and said, the algorithm is going to get you. And it was really kind of like, I sort of laughed, but it was also ominous. You know, it was kind of like foreboding. And I'm thinking about how Daniel, when I read, when I saw that, thinking about Daniel, everything he used to say would come true about six months later. Like it was almost predicted. Well, duh, because every, because the GSPs are planning out what the future is of their particular technology set. So you have little hints of this every week in what you know each of the DSPs do. Now, again, this is why artists need to have management or other people in their lives or you know consultants or people in, or that are really helpful in this area to not have to burden them with these things. But it's really important for them to understand all this stuff too. Yeah. Because there are other artists that are native to it now. So yeah. That's so good. I, I love that answer. I think, you know, be a student of what's happening and as much as you can work with other people, like you said, consultants, managers, people that have their ear to the ground on the business side so you can keep creating and doing what you're good at. Um, 
as we're kind of wrapping up, I, we are going to do a deep dive for those who are interested. I want the scoop on distributors, distributors, DistroKid, AWOL, TuneCore. We are going to record that uh, right after we jump off. And if people are interested in accessing that, they can go to madeitinmusic.com, our website, and access this deep dive along with all of the others. But to close out, uh, how about we, uh, we jump into our lightning round? Are you ready for that? Sure. Rapid fire, rapid fire questions. Here we go. Favorite artist success story you've been a part of? Lauren Daigle at Spotify. Oh, more, more than that for King Country. Um, Torrin Wells, uh, Phil Wickham. Um, being able to see platinum and gold artists in utilizing where I was, where I really championed those artists inside of Spotify. Those are really gratifying. Um, but prior to that, it would be Mercy Me with I Can Only Imagine crossover, Sixpence on the Richard Kiss Me, Jars of Clay's Flood. And, and the first record that I ever worked was Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine. So uh, the, it's the first record that I ever got to work. I worked at a college. So I've had these little moments. I, I wish they were more often than every four years like the Olympics. But, you know, occasionally there, there are things that break through. But excited about the last couple of years um, in terms of the, the new artists that have come out of streaming. And hopefully I was a part of a little part of that story in terms of being able to provide newer and more often audiences to kind of make the jump into streaming that are new, especially in the Christian faith space. Awesome. Second question. You were once based in New York City. What was your favorite venue to see shows? Um, our, my office, when I started, and I'm a native, uh, so I used to go out a lot. Limelight, um, was a, uh, was particularly crazy, um, in the early nineties. Um, CBGB's was down the street, a couple of blocks away from the offices that I had when I was with TBT and I was, um, on fourth and Lafayette and I was over on Bowery. Um, so CBGB's was always great. Arlene's Grocery um, in um, uh, Lower East Side um, off of Ludlow. Strong, strong club. Um, um, Wetlands, um, which were in Soho. Um, great, great spot. I, I don't think it's there anymore. Um, the Knitting Factory um, was a great venue. Great venue for progressive music. Um, and... Uh, Rockwood. I mean, anytime I went back to New York, even in the past five years, I would, I, you know, it didn't matter what night it was. You go to Rockwood, you know, and see some great music. And, and they always had music, you know, and they had three venues going on at the same time. Tiny. Yeah. But always, always it. good stuff. I like the smaller, smaller venues where I can really hear what's going on. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. Great starts. What's one thing you're really excited to do after quarantine is over? Wow. Um, get a real burger. <laughs> I love it. I'm with you there. <laughs> and then lastly, get a real burger and a real steak. Yeah. Uh, last lightning round question. What is the top false belief that artists have about Spotify? That Spotify doesn't care about artists. That they don't care about the relationship. That's false. Mm. They care too much. 
everything, every tool that exists, the whole reason why that company is in business is for serving the artists. Um, I can tell you, I'm not going to be able to quote it specifically, although I do remember some of it. The, um, the um, sort of uh, main point of Spotify was to give one million artists the ability to live off of their work to the enjoyment of billions of fans. I'm paraphrasing the main company line. And I remember sitting in um, our uh, onboarding and seeing that graphic up, is that this is the mission statement of the company. Hmm. I thought there's, you know, I'm a little older, you know, seeing a mission statement that's that art driven, you know, for a company that has that sort of valuation, right? Uh, and, and real money dollars. I just don't think, I just was trying to get my head around this thing existing 20 years ago and how the world really has changed and how the arts are really essential to people's lives, especially right now. Hmm. And uh, how Spotify is probably, you know, is really geared towards that. The other DSPs have them, but the other DSPs are a function of other commercial enterprises. Spotify lives and dies on the content that is on there. They're not selling hardware. Yeah. I love it. Well, that, that is, that is a great answer and a great way to wrap up this interview. John Butler, if people want to connect with you, work with you, learn from you, read your blogs, where can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I, I normally will blog there uh, and should be able to reach out. So good. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to do our deep dive right after this interview is over. If people want access to that, they can get that at, again at madeitinmusic.com where you can access this deep dive. We're going to talk about digital distributors. And yeah, John, thanks so much for being on the Made It Music podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.